I was wondering what to do for minute 100 to make it interesting. Minute 50 we did, you know, the big live episode. It went spectacularly. And then I realized we're near the end of the film. Maybe it's time to change things up and, you know, research, prepare. Well, not prepare much. I'm I'm not going to write anything down. Unlike my other shows, where I will write word for word entire scripts for an episode, sourced quotes and everything else. So, for example, last night, I was looking at this piece in Vulture by Jordan Cruciola, 13 September 2018. The title, This One Scene in Mandy Makes It the Best Band Men Film of 2018. <laughs> just the fact that someone's writing a Vulture piece on a scene from Mandy is just disturbing. But then we get into the factual inaccuracies. The opening sentence. There's a lot going on in the new movie Mandy from writer and director Panos Cosmetos. No, there's almost nothing going on in this film. Despite its boringness, that may be why it's actually watchable, is because it's really easy to understand what happens. A lot of it's stupid, but it happens in sort of order. Quote-unquote married couple are in a cabin, living an idyllic life, A weird cult shows up. For some reason, that weird cult has contacts with demonic-slash-drugged-up bikers. And they use them to capture this couple. And then, air quotes, Mandy rejects Fishmouth, Jeremiah. And Andy, who apparently is named Red, but I reject this. I also reject her being named Mandy, for that matter. And them being married, because the movie has not established it. The only one who gave her name as Mandy is Jeremiah, and he wouldn't know. The only one who said they were married is Susan, white-haired lady, and she wouldn't know. And all she says is hubby. It's not legally binding. (sighs) Anyway, Andy gets revenge. I don't know how far he goes in that yet. Minute 100 is about to begin. I I have it. Press play. Uh, He has got his stupid axe, and he's going to stab Swiney in the mouth with it. And I don't care. I mean, good for him. There's a reason revenge movies in the 80s or and in the 90s move quickly. Despite the common line, revenge is a dish best served cold. It's not. I mean, maybe it's nice to serve it cold because you catch people unawares. But in a film, we don't care about that. What we want is you to... Pick up your gun, pick up your rocket launcher, pick up your stupid axe and your crossbow, and just go out and kill everything that wronged you. Because that's how film works. It's how an action film works. It's how a horror film works. Holding in slasher films is eventually the final girl takes up her phallic weapon and strikes back. There are exceptions, of course. But it's a rule. It's how it goes. I'm going to skip down to the end of this article. I'll come back, but on that note, I'll read you this whole section. If there's any clear takeaway from Mandy Cosmetos' second feature, it's that the writer-director has fully had it with men, and Sand, that's Jeremiah, is the human dumpster he's pouring all his fury into. On screen, Sand is the kind of guy you can meet at a bar and find harmless or even charming at first, but who spends his free hours moderating an incel subreddit and blaming the Stacys who won't have sex with him for his every failing. This writer's annoying me. I mean, they're not wrong, but they're wrong. Uh, 
Santa's the kind of guy you can meet at a bar and find harmless or even charming at first. No, literally his first scene is a him staring stupidly at a woman he hasn't met. His second scene is him freaking out and seizing at the horror of not being with her. He's immediately unlikable. He's never charming. Back to the article. I conceived of this character from personal experience and observation, and I thought of making him this cartoonish monstrosity, Cosmitos says of his villain, who he ultimately decided would be much more effectively menacing if he was drawn as ordinary. I love how both Cosmitos and Cruciola here are trying to take this seriously. <laughs> your, your villain is still a cartoonish monstrosity. He freaks out over a woman he saw walking in the woods in his first scene where he actually does anything. In the scene that this article is about, he plays his own music, poses like Christ, takes off his robe, and starts violently masturbating when the woman rejects him and then screams at everyone when she rejects him further. He is a cartoonish monstrosity. And I'm pretty sure he did that on purpose. Because of what this article is saying. But effectively menacing if he was drawn as ordinary. He's not drawn as ordinary. He's a cult leader. Introduced in a stupid van in a red fog. With a stupid subtitle. Children of the New Dawn. Fuck that. And it was mostly a coincidence that the rampant exposure of abusive men across high profile industries became a cultural flashpoint while he was making his film. Ugh, you're trying so hard to write well. I was working on the script for six years or something like that, and eventually the world caught up to my nightmare, he says. <laughs> Fuck reality. Okay, so, he's ten years old in the jungle, starts writing the script, it takes him six years to write it. I believe that. Took him six years to write this as an adult? <laughs> you fucking suck. I know I say rude things about Panos Cosmatos all the time, but I could write this script. This is the kind of script you could write in like a uh, Stephen King writing the long walk kind of one night bender where you just sit down and write and drink and do drugs. This isn't the kind of thing you spend six years perfecting. And if this is what it took you six years to perfect, you are a fucking awful writer, director, imagineer. That might be trademarked, but fuck it. No. It took you six years to come up with cult murders a guy's wife, guy takes revenge. There were how many Death Wish movies in the 80s? Not to count all the Death Wish ripoff movies and the Dirty Harry movies and every other fucking violent male-dominated film in the 80s and the 90s and the 70s and the 60s. The aughts. Still. Six years. The male ego is a terrifying, terrifying thing, you know. If it's shattered, it becomes even more dangerous. Uh, stop trying to philosophize. Stop trying to act like your film is saying something clever. Come to why this backfires in a moment. Let's take our time. Back to the scene in question. The entire setup is scored by San's own band. The failed pop star was ousted from his folk group, robbing him of the fame he so totally deserved. And now he's taken up the word of the Lord to keep people in his thrall. A. Yes. That's an accurate description. B. Also, the way Panos' six-year writing trek took him is he's not really taking up the word of the Lord. He's stealing things from D&D. 
I don't think he's going for the ancient, was it Hindu or whatever? This Abraxas is from D&D. Pale Knight is from D&D. I haven't watched past 100 this second time through. I don't know if anything else comes up. Do they have any other special magical items? <sighs> to close the deal with Mandy, Sand opens his robe and says that they, two special people, should be so very special together. Mm-hmm. Yes. With the rest of his followers looking on, Mandy rejects him in the most spectacular fashion. No, she, she laughs. Rejecting him in the most spectacular fashion would be if she had torn off his genitals right there in the scene and the movie ended. You need to see more films. Faced with Sand's naked and vulnerable body and the opportunity for salvation... <laughs> okay, sure. Mandy maniacally laughs his proposition down. Sand screams at her to shut up. He screams at his followers to look away. He screams as he starts to cry and Mandy just keeps laughing. Ugh. Oh no, a quote. That was one of the earliest scenes that I wanted to do. I just find there's nothing funnier and more scary than a delusional man who thinks they're the center of the universe. And in fact, they're not, says Cosmatos. The irony of what I think Cosmatos thinks of himself, and what I clearly think of myself having done this show, the double layer of irony, is not lost on me. <laughs> See, I can, I can be self-deprecating. You know, you were here when I read the stuff I wrote when I was a kid, and it was awful. Uh, says Cosmatos, who kept the scene mostly unchanged over years of tinkering with the script. See, I imagine in reality, not my fake backstory where he was writing in the jungle and then on the set of Cobra 2 and whatever else the fuck his father made in the 80s. In reality, I hope his six years means he wrote this script. And then six years later, he saw it on a shelf and he blew some dust off of it. And then he's like, I'm making this. With no changes. Whatsoever. No rewrites. No corrections. No attempt at believable dialogue or interesting characters. Or giving characters names. I, I don't know. I, I, I couldn't find the script online, actually. So I don't know what the characters are called in the script. I assume they're Mandy and Red. And that's why he didn't realize that no one ever said their names is because he'd been saying their names for a couple of pages of dialogue. Because it's about all the dialogue they have in the film. They're nothing but dangerous in that way. I just wanted Mandy to laugh in the face of that because she's the center of this film. <laughs> she's the center of this film. And I understand that's literally how this film is structured. Is we're supposed to care about her and think it's horribly tragic and moving when she dies, but she doesn't do anything. She has no personality. She has very little dialogue. There's a line. Oh, I have it open, so I'll go to it now. Someone did a thing at the editingroom.com, which they call Mandy, the Abridged Script by Alex W. It's really bad. Uh, for example, it starts, Fade in, exterior, the woods, 1983. Why 1983? Well, stylistic reasons, really. The whole movie could just as easily be set in present day. This is the, this is the kind of stuff they're going for. Cut to the second scene. Uh, they're at a campfire. Nick makes a campfire and mumbles horrible dad jokes while Andrea gets in the water and walks slowly towards shore, very nakedly and portentously. There's fire and visions and everything gets trippy and hypnotic and honestly, do not start watching this movie if you're feeling at all sleepy. It will knock you right the fuck out. Yes. No shit. <laughs> Absolutely right. Dialogue. Andrea Riseborough. 
Did I ever tell you the story about how my dad made me and other kids murder starlings? It's kind of a long, slow story, and I'm not sure what it has to do with anything, but it's like 90% of all my lines, so I'm going to fucking tell it. Yes. I got to, I need to talk to this Alex W. thing. I need to read this whole abridged script joke thing, because he gets it. Yes, the starling story has nothing to do with the dream, question mark, about finding the dead baby deer in the woods. Has nothing to do with any of this. I understand there's some sort of planet thing at the end of this movie. I do not remember from watching it before. I'll get there, and I will complain, and I will yell, and I will scream, and I will cry, and I will hate, and I will tell you about it. But the animated sequences, for example, are just so stupid and unnecessary. The axe is stupid and unnecessary. Apparently it has a name. It's called The Beast. Crossbody name, too. I don't remember what it was, but... When he showed up at Bill Duke's trailer, he's like, oh, I'm here for, and it's like the justif- justifier. <laughs> I don't know what you call it. I'm not going to make up some stupid name. It's fucking crossbow. Who cares? He should have shown up for a special axe. If there was going to be a special axe, it should have already existed. Or if you're going to have him forge it, as I've already said, there should have been some reason that we know that he can forge weapons. It's not just something you just pick up out of nowhere. It's not something that isn't part of who you are. If I have a forge in a cave near my house, that's part of who I am. It's something I do with my time. In fact, that I have a pod, multiple podcasts about movies. In fact, that I have shelves of books in the dining room. That I have a shelf of board games. That I have a couple containers of miniatures for playing D&D. A bag of dice. These are things I tell you. They are things that you would see in the set dressing when the, you get first seen in my fucking apartment. You wouldn't have bad lighting and stupid dad jokes about Eric Estrada. And you would see the art that Mandy draws. And you would see it clearly because it would matter to who she is. You would see more of the book she's reading and what she thinks of it. Not, oh, I think this is Lenore Torres' best book. That's not commentary. That's bullshit. It's cheap, simplistic bullshit. You want to include bits of fiction, bits of fantasy, dreams, all that in your movie? Make it matter. Make it matter to the plot. Make it matter to the story. Make it matter to the characters. Make us care about these characters by giving them actual interests and actual personalities that are believable and go beyond stupid little brief strokes. She has a fantasy novel with a stupid title and bad text. That's what we know about her. She draws something. That's what we know about her. One time as a kid, she didn't kill a bird. That's what we know about her. That doesn't make me care. I don't even know that she's happy. I don't recall her smiling. Yet we're supposed to see this idyllic life of these two characters in their cabin in the woods. Then show them on the boat. Don't show it from far away. Show them at the campfire. Don't show it briefly and cut to fire. Show them having fun in the water, not melodramatic walking up out of the water and bad lighting. Give us actual characters with actual lived-in-ness. We shouldn't have to do all the work for you. Because she's the center of this film. I wanted her to be the one to essentially destroy him. 
I don't even know how he dies. I don't remember. I'll get there. We got, what, 20 minutes of this movie left? He would die physically later, but I think he died right there. As Mandy emasculates sand in front of disciples, the scene becomes an embodiment of Margaret Atwood's thought experiment of asking a male friend what men fear most about women that they'll be laughed at, and then asking a room full of women what they fear most about men that they'll be killed. Actually, I'm intrigued by this thought experiment. Maybe we'll come to it later. Novelist Margaret Atwood writes that when she asked a male friend why men feel threatened by women, he answered, they are afraid women will laugh at them. When she asked a group of women why they feel threatened by men, they said, we're afraid of being killed. That seems to be the extent of it. It's not a quote-unquote thought experiment. So, no, I won't be exploring it later. I explored it now in the editing room. Fuck you, Ponus. Mandy may sign her own death warrant by leveling Sand's authority in that moment, but in choosing death over life as his concubine, <laughs> she lands a fatal blow of her own. Sand's, that sounds like a sports writer. Sand's paper empire is built entirely on his own ego, and he delivers his speech, which Roach performs straight through in two unblinking takes, each described by the director as perfection. Of course. With the conviction of a divine right. It's a violent certainty native to warped masculinity that Cosmatos wanted to undermine with his film. <laughs> sure. We'll come back to that. First, let's get a little personal note from Cosmatos. I might actually be allergic to testosterone, the director says. Whenever I felt a testosterone rush, I get, like, sick afterwards, and I feel exhausted and terrible. Yeah, that's called normal. I honestly think I'm allergic to it in my own body, so being around aggressive men makes me feel like shit. I'm no role model, but this is, like, off the fucking charts. The way people express themselves online, that's also how they express themselves in the real world. That's what's really stunning, is this sense of entitlement is so huge that they go out in the real world and kill people over it. It's unsettling and dystopic to the extreme. Okay. Fair. I'm with you. So even if you're going to see Mandy... This is back to the author of the piece, Jordan Curciola. So even if you're going to see Mandy for the fist-sized lumps of cocaine that Cage inhales while he kills a trailer full of sadists, it's the slaughtering of fragile masculinity with a freshly forged steel axe that should stay burned in your brain long after it's over. Neither Cosmatos nor Curciola seem to notice the contradiction there. Their response to the toxic masculinity of Fishmouth is for Andy to not only just pick up a weapon at hand, which makes sense, then it's impulsive. That's why a revenge movie is. It's a fantasy. It's an impulse. It's this idea that we think in that situation we would take revenge. We would take it immediately. We would be violent. We would be crazy. We would destroy things, kill things, and be done with it. By giving him the time to visit Bill Duke, pick up his crossbow, and get information about these weird drugged-up bikers. By giving him time to go into his weird forging cave and make an axe, you have disconnected your film from your alleged message. This is not a film about getting rid of toxic masculinity. This is not a film about how these dangerous, aggressive men need to be stopped because... You stop them in this film with dangerous aggression. You stop them in this film with entitled toxic masculinity. The idea that Andy needs to go and kill, was it seven cult members, four demonic bikers, 
Does he eventually go back and kill the drug maker? I don't remember. He just went and met him, but didn't kill him. Maybe he comes back later. I don't recall. So he's going to kill 11 or 12 people. That's entitlement. The idea that he thinks he can take methodical, slow, planned revenge on a dozen people because his wife was taken from him is not... It's no longer cinematic revenge. It's something bigger and something worse. That's testosterone. That's this thing you're saying you're allergic to. You think is it makes you feel sick afterwards, exhausted and terrible. That is what Andy is. He is that testosterone. He is that woke masculinity that thinks it owns the woman it's with. And if someone takes her, then he has to destroy everyone involved. And it's fucked up. It's not the slaughtering of fragile masculinity. It's fragile masculinity lashing out. I don't have time for this today. That's not even my desk. 